0: This is Alexander Sadig, and you are listening to Star's End Podcast. How
1: the, how the hell does this happen? And Harry says, I have no idea. But he is back in human flesh again. He is no longer a hologram. And that's where the episode
0: ends. He's a real boy.
1: He's a real. Pinocchio has become a real boy. <laughs> I, I said that to somebody on uh, text exchange. How did Pinocchio become a real boy? <laughs> and we don't know. Hello and welcome to Season 4 of Star's End, the podcast dedicated to Isaac Asimov's classic sci-fi series Foundation. I'm John and together with my co-hosts Stan and Joseph, we'll be watching and talking about Season 2 of Apple TV's Foundation series, episode by episode. We're glad you've decided to join us. Welcome to episode four of season four of the Starzang podcast. Once again, we apologize for the misalignment of our episodes. We're going to be covering episode three of season two of the TV show foundation. And this week we have a special guest, a returning guest, Rick Tatro, who was our guest way back in season three, about 13 months ago, before season two had come out, season one had come out. Rick, uh, you had not watched season one at the time. So... Tell you what, why don't you give us an introduction? Because my habit is not to give introductions. Let you introduce yourself and maybe talk about how you went back and watched season one of the Foundation.
0: Well, thank you very much. And thanks for having me back, uh, gentlemen. It's always a joy to talk to you all. Um, uh, I am uh, one of the co-hosts on that Star Trek podcast on the Infinite Potato Alliance podcasting network. Uh, you can find us at InfinitePotato.com. We have uh, lots of geek-oriented shows there. And uh, yeah, so that's mainly what I do. If you want if you want to hear anything else, I have to say, oh, we also, we just started a new, uh, a new show that I keep forgetting to mention called Moon Show, which is a For All Mankind podcast. Oh. Uh, if you're not watching that show, you should be. It's amazing.
2: It's like 21st century Star Trek.
0: Yes, it is. I've
2: heard a lot of good things about it.
0: I was dragged into it. I, you know, People kept saying, oh, you're not watching it. And I, I'm i not a big fan of alternate history fiction, but everybody that knows me knows I'm a huge fan of NASA and the space program and everything. And they're like, why aren't you watching this show? And then finally, I kept hiding behind, well, I don't want another subscription. Apple Plus is only five bucks a month. So it's like, that was really kind of a, a spurious argument. And so I, I started watching and I am absolutely hooked. It's fantastic.
2: I oh, will definitely tune into that.
1: So let's go back. Oh, one other thing we should mention is that we were on your podcast.
0: You were. You were on uh back my old show, the the Starbase 66 or the Admiral's Table. That show is is has now been been retired.
1: I hope it wasn't off-air. Oh,
0: no, 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 no. No. <laughs> All right. So tell
1: us tell us about, you know, when we first spoke to you, you had not yet watched what what was out at the time, which was season 1 of Foundation. But now you've gone back and watched it and you're watching season 2. So tell us your impressions of season 1.
0: Uh, much, much like y'all, I did not expect it to be a faithful rendition of the books because the books for as much as, as we all love them are in no way cinematic that they're just, there would be no way to just take a direct scene by scene from one, because it just, it's not written that way. And, you know, his characters weren't particularly well fleshed out. It was more about the events and, and clever people outwitting stupid people over and over again. So I was expecting a lot of differences. Uh, when I first heard they were doing Foundation as a series, I, my first thought was, oh, no. <laughs> and I had a lot of problems isn't probably the right word, but you all talked about a lot of the things that I th- I thought about as I was watching. I, I like the fact that they're bringing more diversity into casts and in, just in general in television now, especially in genre fiction. Having characters no longer be white guys when their gender and ethnicity was utterly irrelevant to the story is, is fine. It's visually stunning. I have big issues with Demerzel. And I, I know that you all have wrestled with the absence of any sort of laws of robotics involving Demerzel. It's not necess- It's I've, I've finally gotten past it, I think, for season two, because after after the first episode of season two, which was really good, I was like, all right, I th- I think I'm finally letting go of the source material and just enjoying the series for what it is. You know, and when when we do get a a named character that we recognize the name, that's a nice little bit of icing on the cake, but I'm no longer expecting this to be the foundation that I read. Now it's been a long time since I read the prequels. I think I read them when they came out, and that was the last time I'd even looked at them. So I'm I'm not sure if we're getting some stuff from there sprinkled in now or not. I I think as a series, I think it stands quite well. You know, there's definitely a Dune influence. There's definitely a Game of Thrones influence uh, going on. It's a lot more violent than the books, although there was a lot of violence in the book. It's Books, it just didn't. We didn't see well, it.
1: We talked about that last week. How many billions of people, the Second Foundation, don't want to die? I mean, it's yeah, like forty billion just on Trantor. <laughs> I mean, there, there's a lot of death, but you don't see it.
0: Yeah. One thing, and, the, and it was reinforced by this episode we're going to talk about today, that really stands out, though, with all of the violence, is a lot of the people, Well, pretty much all of the people who we've seen executed, who were like, knew they were going to die, really didn't seem to be all that bothered about it. Nobody was struggling. Nobody was screaming. Nobody was crying. And the the, the dude who was the first one to, to get taken out with the the Titans prick didn't even move. I think it was probably just a dummy on that rack it, it just it i'm not saying i want to see people you know horribly murdered and, and stuff but it just seems very odd that you, you you've ramped up the violence but then you're kind of pulling the punch in that area
1: although the immolation of warden yeager was pretty graphic
0: yeah that was that, that, yeah you're right but that also, he didn't know that was coming. That and, was... and maybe
1: the worst thing that we've seen, in in my opinion, is is uh, Brother Day's treatment of Azura back in season one, when he erases her existence.
0: Yeah, that was by pretty grim. killing
1: everyone she's ever met or known, and everyone they've. I met. Mean, and we don't actually see that; we just see him make the gesture, and you know mm-hmm. that it's been done. And uh, and just, so that actually happened off camera as well.
2: So, yeah. So, so that yeah, this episode gives us gives us reason to question that actually. Right, because they do
1: lie. They do lie about these things. I I thought about that. Very interesting. So let's talk about uh, episode three of season four. In general, I think they slowed things down. Episode two introduced an enormous number of story elements and a lot of, uh, they sprinkled through a lot of references to the original source material. And they continue to do that here, including having some co- interesting conversations about psychohistory, stuff that I think we've been very interested in. How is this show approaching psychohistory? So, without further ado, let's go through a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a summary. Uh, by the way, David Goyer directed this episode as well as last week's episode. I'm always interested in who the director is. I really felt like in season one, Roxanne Dawson mm-hmm. came up and kind of saved the show by directing a couple of episodes toward the end of the show. So I'm, I'm often checking out, I think episode one was directed by Alex Graves, who has directed a lot of sci-fi TV and uh, directed at least one or two episodes of foundation last season. So I'm always keeping my eye on that. So
0: can I, be, before you jump into yeah. the synopsis, there is one other thing thing I wanted to bring up sure. that I'm, I'm a little disappointed in you gentlemen. <gasps> there was no, yes. there was no, Tim the Enchanter reference when the when belt when uh, Polly was doing his little light show in the in the last episode.
1: Uh, guilty, guilty as charged, <laughs> Tim. <Yeah. laughs>
2: or they'll call me Tim.
1: Uh, you're obviously they Didn't have now. a
2: rabbit handy. I think is probably the. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
1: There's certainly no lack of Monty Python knowledge on this podcast. Sure.
2: Well, yeah, I mean we have we have Bell Rios walking around through this in, entire episode looking like either an extra in in, in life of brian or okay or, um or i Matt. i wrote
1: down when we first saw bel rio's it's the old man from scene 24.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah and then and then he's also really familiar or really reminiscent of the it's guy at the beginning of every <laughs> <it's>. <laughs> and by
1: the way one thing about this episode that i don't think has really been present in most of these episodes is a tremendous amount of cursing mm. lots of f-bombs yeah. here which i don't i don't care go ahead but like it it just it was so frequent that it was noticeable yes anyway first opening scene we see the beggar approaching the planet now we talked about this last week if this is ignis it should have taken them three years to get there it clearly did not but whereas we're going to find out this is not ignis uh, we're not told that for a while they they land gail and Salvar talk about Salvar's death Salver's actually pretty cool with it. Uh, she knows that she's not 150 years in the future right now. So she's in no danger of dying. Uh, Hollow Harry joins. He actually takes over steering the ship because he can do that. He can jump into the computer. They land and the computer warns them in one of the first of several Chekhov type references here. That's for you, Joseph uh, <laughs> Chekhov's thin surface. We're warned that the surface is thin. Uh, nothing happens immediately, but we're going to come back to that. And we find out this is not Ignis. Again, lots of cursing, where the fuck are we if we're not there, that kind of stuff. Well, we're on Una's world, which we know we were told Harry was going to go to because the Prime Radiant told him, I'll meet you on Una's world. And there's a whole discussion. Gale doesn't want to carry Harry around inside the Prime Radiant. I guess he needs like the uh, EMH's hollow emitter if he wants to be independent and doesn't have that. So finally, Salvor convinces Gale to go, just go with him, get it over with. And they go off into a long walk across the desert. We switch to terminus where the vault is being guarded apparently by the foundations of military uh, there's a council meeting cermak uh councilor cermak or director cermak asks a question i think we were all asking which is how could selvin's math foresee someone specific like hober Mello? and that is certainly a debate that we've been having uh i attempted last week to get them off the hook on this type of thing by separating the Prime radiance ability to update itself on what's actually happening, and its view into the future with what the plan is planning for. And there's gonna be more talk about that, but I thought that was a damn good question. How the hell does the Vault even know about the existence of someone called Hober Mallow? But Polly is very much of the opinion that they gotta get Hober. If the Vault is asking for Hober, you gotta go get him. And it turns out that Polly knows Hober personally. Um, he's a failed priest, he's now a con man. The character of Hober appears to be a mashup of several characters from the original source material. He's a little bit of Linmar uh, Lin-ar Ponietz. he's a little bit of Lathan Devers, he's maybe a little bit of Hober Mallow. He's certainly not the Hober Mallow that we encountered in the books, but it's a familiar name, makes us happy. And They have to go to Corel, which is a planet from the original source material. Although, again, it's going to be handled a little bit differently, and there's going to be a little bit of a mashup of characters. And again, I don't know. I'm I'm of two minds about these references to the source material. On the one hand, I always go, aha, that's from the source. But I know that. (laughs) That's that thing from the book. On the other hand, some of it does feel like it's sprinkled in exactly to get that kind of reaction from somebody like me. But okay, okay. We go to una's world and they're having the long walk and in our second chekhov reference we have the autonomous mining machines which are just sort of standing around doing nothing dale asks harry what they are harry says they were here to mine was it the polonium whatever it was they were taking off the planet but then they got turned on the populace and uh, you know he says that we're here because the radiant asked for it and then there's a big backtrack into psychohistory. history a, a very i thought very interesting and important conversation here between Gale and Harry. Harry is complaining about Gale wanting to do something about Salver's death in the future. And he says, my plan makes small changes in the present to adjust large events in the future. You want to observe one very small event in the future, the death of a specific human being, and apply massive forces in the present to avert it. And that's, to me, very much what, go ahead, Joseph.
2: Yeah, I was going to say that 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 conversation actually annoyed the crap out of me. Okay. <laughs> because they're they're on the same side basically. Both of the things that they're they're you know both of the things that, what they want to do if they want to both you know avoid Salvor's death. A- actually, Harry's f- completely wrong. I think to to think that Salvor's death is inevitable. But if he does something subtle in the present to change the future, then. If the futures change, Salvor is probably not going to die that way.
1: Well, I agree with you. Although, you know, what he's kind of saying is that I don't think he's saying that it's inevitable because I think he is saying we can make changes now that will change the future.
2: Right. Which
1: is the whole idea. Right. I'm thinking about the big picture and I'm setting up the conditions that are going to make the big picture work. You have a personal stake in this one person and you're willing to sacrifice a lot just to change that. So I, I think it's a, a, actually a legitimate complaint. But let's yeah. move past that.
2: But then it would be very easy to fix that. It's like if, if we get things going in the right direction with our subtle changes now, the entire thing you're worried about is taken care of. That I think would it's be a the fair, smart thing for him to say.
1: I think it's a fair point. It's a fair point. He also says every historical about Salver Harden solving the first crisis, every historical condition was on her side. If it hadn't been her, it would have been someone else, and that is very true to the original idea of Psychohistory. Yes. He is not interested in Salver Harden. He wasn't aware of Salver Harden when he met her at the vault, or an other Harry met her at the vault. And uh, Gail accuses him of being self-centered, and he says, well, Gail, it, it is my plan. And uh, they go into the ruins. He does mention Yana again. I thought we might meet Yana. Uh, as it turns out, we're not going to meet Yana. A- and also, he was lying about how close it was because he said it's 500 meters over there and he said yeah horizontally we have to go up and of course it doesn't bother him to go up he's a hologram an interesting thing was pointed out by a a viewer is that if you look carefully at gail and harry walking through the desert you only see one set of footprints
0: i wrote that down
1: uh, (laughs) okay i'm not going to make the obvious joke about the the whole jesus thing i
0: I did think of that too but
1: It's accurate because he's a hologram. He shouldn't be yeah. making footprints and he doesn't make footprints. So I thought that was a nice little touch. Uh, we switched to the Lepsis Penal Colony. And as I wrote here, it's the old man from scene 24 mm-hmm. uh, to make that Monty Python reference because we see <laughs> a guy, very bedraggled, long hair, looking terrible. Uh, it's a cruel place. You see a slacker getting zapped. And then when when our old man goes over to defend him, the guard just shoots the guy. So uh, that's Prisoner 713, who now has our attention, and a ship arrives, and Demerzel arrives. And the old man, as we might have guessed, is Bell Rios, who is there because he disobeyed Brother Day's orders. Demerzel says, we need the hero of the 20th Fleet. He asks for freedom for all of the other prisoners, just as a condition of talking about it. They go back and forth, but Demerzel agrees for better conditions for the prisoners, and he says, oh, fine, I'll talk. Just talk. At some point, he says, tell Empire he can go fuck himself in his big blue fucking dress. <laughs> and especially in the particular accent, the particular British accent he has, it's a, it's a great line. But Demerzel says, we have something for you. We have Ker, uh Kerr, and that is Bell Rios' husband. They told Bell that Glauen had been executed six years before, and Demerzel says, nope, that was just part of the punishment. He's actually alive. Which brings us back to the question of Azura. Back from season one, Brother Day said, we eliminated everyone you ever knew, everyone who's ever related to you. Uh, p- perhaps they didn't actually do that. I mean, that, that would have they would have had to go to a lot of trouble to do that. We're, we're finding out that maybe when they say these things, they're not telling the truth. I don't know. I like to think they didn't really do it. But now that Bell Rios has been told that his husband is alive, he can't say no. He absolutely can't say no. So he follows Demersel. We go back up to the cave, to the mystery door. More Dungeons and Dragons happening here. Gail has to roll for traps or something. and uh, Speak she does, friend. <laughs> yeah, she does <laughs> She does figure out the secret of the door by pushing on it. Uh, the door opens, a woman comes out, and from the cadence of her speech, once again, Gail recognizes her as Kale, the famous mathematician, that uh, Gail solved her proof.
0: Um, That's who it was. Okay.
1: Yep. She can take hollow Harry inside. She says, I have, I guess she's got an emitter of some kind that can support the hologram. She takes Harry inside. The door very quickly shuts. Oh, they, by the way, one interesting point there is that Gail shakes hands with Kali. Kali seems like a real person. That's not explained. There's gonna be a lot here that's not explained. The door shuts, Gail is locked out. Harry kind of says to her, you know what? I might not see you again. We should probably say goodbye. The door shuts and gail Yell, yells a curse and uh, she's stuck outside uh, before harry goes inside he says if you don't hear from me in six hours leave okay and then we go to Corel and we see a conversation between the comdor of Corel and trader ponietz as we're told trying to sell him something he has a very used car salesman sleazy kind of uh, approach or Ar- condor argo says he wants no religion this is very uh, reminiscent of Ascon. Where uh, they were trying to sell something without bringing the Asco didn't want the religion. In any case, Ponyets supposedly says, Oh, no, I don't care about the religion. I just want to sell things. The uh, the forcer, who apparently is the Commodore's chief of police, immediately recognizes that this is not Lamar Ponyets. It is Hober Mallow, famous con man. And there's a long, complicated scene. Ending with Mallow using a sort of a, a, well, he calls it a castling device, which switches two people, switches their positions. And and Mallow winds up trying to steal the Eye of Corel, a very valuable jewel out of the Commodore sword. He fails, they arrest him. You know The the MacGuffin is this switcheroo device. So they arrest Hober, there's not gonna be a trial, they're just gonna be, he's just gonna be executed. Uh, We switch back to the palace. Bell Rios is offered a chance to clean up. But he says, you know what? I want Brother Day to see me the way I am now. And he goes to Brother Day with the long, straggly hair and not having cleaned himself. And he goes to see the Cleons. And there's a whole kind of verbal fencing thing that goes on. They do get to the point of telling him that the foundation is the enemy. At some point, Brother Day just gets tired of it and says, you know what? Kill the husband. Send him back to, send him back to the penal colony. And he says, look, I want a private conversation. And they have a private conversation. Uh, very interesting. Brother Day says, I bet you'd like to hit me. And, you know, go ahead, hit hit me. You know, one option leads to you being reinstated and and doing this job for us. The other option leads to the death of your husband and you're get, you get sent back to the penal colony. And we always will not hit him because he took an oath. As much as he hates Brother Day, he took an oath. And he's the type of person who, when he takes an oath, he's going to live up to it and he is a loyalist to the empire if not to empire themselves and brother day smiles and the door opens and there's an emotional reunion between rios and Glowen, which uh, actually was i thought was very touching was um, beautiful rios doesn't want Glowen to hug him or, or kiss him because he's filthy and his teeth are disgusting and and but he just this this idea of seeing that them seeing each other after being separated, they they were both told the other one was dead for six years. It was it was uh, extremely well done. Ben Daniels, the actor who plays Bill Rios, who we've seen in a, a lot of things in the past. I thought he looks a lot like Daniel Craig. Did anyone else notice that? Is when he gets I just done? I
0: just knew I knew him from somewhere. I had to look him up on IMDb because he's not
1: Daniel Craig, but he looks no. a bit like him. He's mostly done British television.
0: But that was that was such a beautiful moment, though, when he goes from Badass, swaggering, talking up to the emperor, to embar- embarrassed spouse seeing his his husband for the first time in six years, and he's like, "I stink." I've, I've got and and just the the whole mannerism, how he just sort of went from from tough to tender, all and it was just a beautiful acting moment.
1: Yeah, I think I I really think it's the it's the heart of this show is that there are so many great performances by so many different actors. And this is yet another one
3: there is. Let me just jump in with one tiny demerit on this otherwise great scene, which I agree with was, was fantastic, but it's just a a very rare continuity error in this show. That is uh, when the line about the teeth, right. And he says, my teeth are disgusting. In fact, you know, when, when he was out working in the prison camp, we see very clearly his teeth are nasty and gross but when he sees that, he says that line,
0: his teeth are actually fine.
3: If you look at it, they did, they I did. For- I did notice it, but <laughs> it didn't get it.
0: I saw it, but it didn't like get past like a, yeah. <laughs> just a superficial notice, but you're right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but,
3: but in terms of the acting and the writing, the scene is fantastic.
1: <laughs> so we switched to Demerzel and Cleon, uh, brother day watching all of this. Uh, she asked him. So he gave the right answer and brother day goes, yeah, whatever. I, I just wanted him to look me in the eye and and show some spunk, so really Brother Day <laughs> this guy is uh, this guy is very he loves the games. He absolutely loves the games. He plays them with Queen Sarah. he plays them here with Bel Rios. You know, there was no right answer or both answers were right or whatever or Brother Day was just you know we're winging in. We go back to una's world. Gale returns a whole chat with Salvor about whether they should leave Harry behind. It's been six hours. Salver says to Gail, what would Harry do? And and, and Gail says, he'd fucking leave me behind. <laughs> and uh, there's a whole thing about how Harry and Gail are more alike than Gail will admit. Uh, anyway, they decide to go. And and Salvor uh, Salver de- 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 delivers the cutting line. That's the thing with parents, isn't it? Never quite who you build them up to be. Oh, that was that was,
0: that was an ouch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and she also quotes a famous Salver Hardin line from the original source material. Which again she attributes to her father. Never let your sense of morals prevent you from doing what's right.
2: Yeah. I have to wonder why they call what well, they didn't call Abbas Salvor and give this character a different name. You know, he's getting all the quotes.
1: Too late. It's, it's too late now. Yeah. We go back to Coral Execution Day. We see an example of how they execute people by using Titan's prick, which is a big sharp needle that they drop down on somebody sitting in a chair with a big target on their stomach. We see one person executed that way. And Hober Mallow is going to be the next one. Polly and Constant arrive and they try to stop it. We notice that Hober is strangely calm through all of this. And maybe we suspect that he has a plan up his sleeve. And indeed, he does. He has the switcheroo device. It's no longer on his wrist. It's in his mouth now. He switches with the Comdor. Uh the forcer immediately realizes it. And by the way, Constant is very attracted to his confidence and his. His whole, his whole uh, presentation. Hober makes his escape, and Polly and Constant arrive, uh, realize that he's going to steal their jump ship. He knows they have a jump ship and he's going to steal it. They arrive just in time to stop him from stealing it. Constant uses the uh, the injection that she uses on Polly to, uh, to purge him, to purge Hober. And uh, so we get a great scene with him throwing up. So we switch to Trantor, and we see Belrios and Glowen arriving on the flagship. He, he again is. Uh, Glowen says we could just grab the ship and go, and again Rio says he won't break his word. And by the way, throwing back to what you were talking about last time, uh, Joseph, the concept of the weak emperor and strong general is something that Rios mentions. The weak emperor needs a strong general, he says, and that is a switch from the books where we had a strong emperor and a strong general. But you know, I think maybe it works better this way. Anyway, they they get on the ship. Everyone clearly, this is one of the situations they all love their general. Including, uh, we meet a spacer with a name called She-Bends Light. And there's a little bit of banter between Rios and She-Bends Light. Everybody goes to sleep for the jump, although noticeably, Bell and Glowen don't. Maybe we didn't see them going into the sleep, I don't know. Uh, She-Bends Light said to, says to Belle, I hope you haven't forgotten how to fold space. So I don't know what's going on there, but do they have the ability to stay awake during the jump? I don't know that it's important, but it was
2: noticeable. Yeah. One, th- one thing I actually want to say about that scene is that it really impressed me when, when, when Rios is is walking onto the bridge. He just seems completely in command and yet so, so utterly comfortable. He's not stiff at all. And, and usually when someone tries to be military, they get a little bit stiff. I think this really, really worked. And it it... it Made him seem more in command than almost anybody else I've I've seen, you know, trying to portray that on a television
1: show. No, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, he he was immediately comfortable. Mm-hmm. I think that again, it goes back to the actor Ben Daniels, who has had to go from prisoner, bedraggled prisoner, to the whole the, the whole meeting with his husband. Now to this another kind of emotional moment. He's just doing a a, a tremendous job here.
0: Can Can I also compliment? Can I also compliment the the, uh, the 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 actors playing the crew in that scene? Because and I don't know if this was directorial or what, but when Rios came onto the bridge of that ship and everybody snapped to attention and they all they all did the the salute. There's like two kinds of coming to attention. There's oh shit. Here's the brass. I need to be perfectly straight and and not attract attention. And then there's absolutely showing utter respect for the person you're coming to attention to. And that whole crew was doing the second kind.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's a there good were point a little smiles, there were a couple of little yeah. smiles, but like, you know, it was kind of a daddy's home moment. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, very, 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 the whole thing very, very well done. And finally, the the last uh, scene, or again, these are long scenes, unlike in previous episodes where we've seen quick cuts. We switch back to the beggar trying to lift off, and then Chekhov's Surface collapses on them and they fall through and they're attacked by the second checkout thing. The, the mining machines immediately attack, they escape. The machines are distracted by someone else. There's someone alive down there. And somehow, in a thing that is not explained here, it is Harry Selden. They go to rescue him. It's a close thing. Of course, again, one of those suspenseless scenes where you know that they're going to succeed. But anyway, they they rescue Harry. They get back onto the beggar, and Gale says, "What? How the, how the hell does this happen? And Harry says, I have no idea. But he is back in human flesh again. He is no longer a hologram. And that's where the episode ends.
0: He's a real boy. He's
1: a real. Pinocchio has become a real boy. <laughs> I, I said that to uh, somebody over uh, text exchange. How did Pinocchio become a real boy? <laughs> and we don't know. Which uh, man so-
2: would love this show.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, it was there was there was action, and clearly the final scene was an action-packed scene. But again, I I only counted depending on how you count the different scenes, only eleven different scenes, this episode. In other episodes, we've seen into the thirties of of scene changes. So the scenes were long, and uh, a lot was done in them. It really seemed to be a slowdown from last week when so many new elements were uh, were introduced. Again, I am left really wanting to see the next episode. So I, I'll throw it open to you guys. What uh, what did you see here? What 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 do we make of this?
0: It it was interesting that you mentioned that it slowed down because there were so, especially watching it a second time, the the door scene, the minor bots at the end, and and like you just said, the suspenseless retrieval of Harry. I don't think they did anything to, to help the episode. You know, the they all it, it was kind of like like with the door scene. It wasn't enough to make it an issue of how we're gonna get through the door. So they might as well have not bothered with it being something they had to get through because it was like, oh wow, how do we open this? And, and then she goes, Oh, this. <laughs> so it was kind yeah. of like <laughs> yeah, what? like it was the, just we need to add two minutes to the script here. So fuck with the door for a while. <laughs> the solution
3: to opening the door is to push on it. I mean, <laughs> this is not a big problem.
0: <laughs> and then when when the beggar falls through the planet. You're thinking, oh, this ought to be real hard. And I don't know if y'all have ever seen the the, the YouTube channel uh uh pitch meeting.
1: Yes, yeah, of course, I love pitch.
0: Um, so you know they fall yeah, through the actually, planet, it's and there's be the super minor bots, easy.
1: barely any chip meeting.
0: Exactly <laughs> the, the the they had no trouble getting away from the minor bots, even though the ship fell through the planet's crust. And but yeah, and so the, again, that was just wasting some time and a lot of very special effects people spend more time hanging off of the beggar than flying it. It seems lately. Um, (laughs) But you know, like you said, there was never any doubt that she was going to get Harry. So why pad it out? So there was, there was a little too much of that. And the the long walk. (laughs) It was was a long, long it was a long walk. Um,
1: Although you can say that the long walk actually, had a point to it which was we're walking through the desert it's you know it's a big deal
0: true true it, but it could have been it, i think they could have cut some of these scenes down or eliminated them and then put some more important plot points in
1: i i agree i mean ultimately you know we have a guy here who has done superhero movies i think you know he he, he falls back on action sequences at times i think when it feels like we haven't had any action for a while and of course it is one of his complaints and one of the legitimate complaints about the books is that so much action happens off camera yeah and we're not going to do that we're going to show stuff so that might be a little bit of it maybe you know maybe there's a little bit of a fear that if we if it's too talky if it's too asimovian <laughs> we might lose our audience a little bit and so we gotta yeah. we gotta sprinkle in some action once in
2: a while. Yeah, once but particularly at the end there i feel like we've switched from asimovian too Star Wars-esque, and I'm not really a fan of Star Wars-esque, especially because there seems to be things that are altogether too mag- magical. I, you know, you know uh, Asimov at his core was a rationalist, and yet I, I complained in the last season about the mathematicians not seeming like mathematicians but seeming like wizards. If this bit about Harry being brought back to life is blown off, I, I, I'm i going to find that a major deficit.
1: I'm pretty sure we're going to get some kind of an explanation.
2: Well, yeah, now. well, it better be a good one, I think. Maybe he's a robot now.
3: Well, he know, has a possible. pulse. We know he has a pulse. A Maybe robot robots can have pulse. pulses, but...
2: Well, robots uh, can, yeah.
3: Yeah, I I. I feel like, we'll, well, if he is a robot, that is something that they should be able to figure out in soon in the next episode. But, you know, we don't know exactly what technology whether he's gotten this 3D printed body or, or what, what, you know, was there a pickle jar in storage just waiting
1: for him? Like wh- that's wh- the other possibility that there's the Kali is the product of some sort of pickle jar and that there was a Harry pickle yeah. jar that they planned for this. Uh, that, that is possible.
3: I, I do think I want to know exactly who Kali is because we uh, like the last time we saw her, she was a manifestation or like a, some kind of avatar of, The prime radiant inside the prime radiant, right? But now, was there a prime radiant on this, on this Una's world? Like, is in in that little vault there, the the cave? Was there some, is there some, like, who knows? Like, and plus, Dale seemed to reach out and touch Kale. Yeah, there was a handshake. Right. And and not only
1: was there a handshake, (laughs) just in case we might miss it right it takes up the entire screen when you see the <laughs> yeah machine. exactly so
3: so yeah some something there's some other thing going on here i feel like which is awaiting explanation in addition to the explanation of harry's body
0: i know y'all brought it up uh last week and i i don't recall my my brain uh, folks forgive me i probably I'm... don't
1: remember either but go ahead
0: my brain's not firing on all its cylinders today (laughs) i'm not so sure i'm terribly comfortable with the thought of the prime radiant becoming sentient and that certainly seems to be the way they're going with it like when harry says the prime radiant told me to come here i'm like it's a it's a big overhead projector it's not supposed to be
3: (laughs) (laughs) i think we mentioned that i i I remember voicing some
1: so we we talked about it and and uh especially in reference to its ability to see into the future, that the prime radiant is saying, hey, there's a problem 150 years from now when the mule arrives. And in the books, the mules, the big problem about the mule was that he was not foreseeable. Yeah. And so I tried to kind of split the difference here by kind of provide a loophole. Uh, that I referred to it a little bit earlier, where I'm trying to separate out what we can see about the future. And Gail has visions of the future. So, there's a I'm trying to separate seeing the future and actually being able to plan for it. So, the prime radiant and Gale together have this ability to see the future. The plan, though, is something else. And so, being able to see the future is a tool here. It says, okay, we can look into the future and see what's happening, but we need a planner. We need a Harry or a Gale who can make the proper adjustments here in the present to keep the plan on track. And so I'm bending over backwards and twisting myself into a pretzel a little bit here to try to produce a, a, a loophole to explain how we can, on the one hand, see the future and on the other hand plan in the present for it. So, I, you know, I, I fully admit to the thinness of my loophole. <laughs> almost like the planet and the surface of uh, Una's world. But it's an attempt. It's an attempt. And I hope, by the way, that David Goyer and his team have put at least as much thought into what they're doing as I'm putting into what they're doing. <laughs> it's something I always want TV shows to do. Is like if I'm going to sit here and speculate about these things, you people who are making this show should damn well be doing it. And he he indicates through interviews and his podcasts, whatever, that he does go through these processes. And well, we'll see, we'll see what kind of an answer we get,
2: and we'll see. I don't know. So yeah, I'm I'm coming out of this episode, I am far less confident of that.
1: Well, I mean, what about Joseph? The fact that they they actually addressed directly the whole concept of planning and psychohistory. And you know, I, I felt like they were really trying to bring us back onto that track. You didn't find um, that satisfactory?
2: Well it did see the um okay the first bit of that conversation and just really seemed to be reinforcing <laughs> I mean well it seemed like like Harry and Gail were Pretty much arguing around each other. It seemed to do nothing other than, than <laughs> other than, than um, enforce the notion that they're both profoundly unpleasant people, <laughs> and then um, it, who are clearly not getting along. And then you know, I, I um, you know, that 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 bit of the conversation where you know it's like, well, what Gail's doing versus what ha- what, what Harry's doing, you know, didn't work for me because I, I, that that didn't feel like it had enough thought go- going into it. I mean, you change something in the present. And, you know, we, we have conceits about how things are going to stay on the same track, but honestly, you know, you, you change something as simple as somebody being conceived a few seconds later or a few seconds earlier, that could be an entirely different individual. Right. So, I mean, there could be huge consequences that, that, uh, you know, but the, the thing that actually particularly, particularly, you know, kind of undermined my confidence was when Harry said, oh, At enough scale, I am irrelevant because such a central point in the previous episode was um, that, oh my God, Gail stopped Harry from creating the the, the second foundation. And look at that. We're off of the blue line and we're onto the red line. And there's going to be crisis after crisis after crisis unless we set this right. And there may not even be an end to the chaos.
1: So okay, but I mean I'm all right with Gale founding the second foundation being a key part of Harry's plan that that went awry, and and again Harry addresses the point about Salver like why why did we need Salver to save the first crisis? Well, we didn't need Salver, Harry says. We had all the historical conditions were in the right place. Now we can argue about the Invictus and its appearance and how crazy that was, but Harry at least is saying the right thing here, which is that yeah, if it wasn't Salver, it could have been it would have been someone. Someone would have got there, and that, of course, is the key to the to the Seldon Plan. And as we saw, in you know what was probably the climax of the whole series in the Bell story in the books, where basically anything that anyone did was going to lead to the same outcome. Right. There's a great moment I, I thought it was a great moment in the in the council meeting on Terminus, where Polly and the council people are all talking about it, and Sirmax says the thing he says about how how could the plan have seen hober and and polly gives this analogy that there's a mountain range and we're being directed towards a mountain pass and all our paths lead to that mountain pass and god damn it let's just go through the past because that's what selden had planned for us and and that's i think that's a very good image of the way psychohistory is supposed to work yeah Absolutely. we see we see it's- the mountains and there's just a and every path that we can take is going to take us there so let's Let's just give into that and go to the mountain pass. So I, I you know, yeah. there. I what I'm trying to say is, it feels like there's a really strong effort here, not just to sprinkle in uh, elements of the original source material, but to really go back to psychohistory, and you know, talk about the role of individuals in psychohistory, the role of historic forces, and those are all themes in the books. You know, uh,
2: absolutely, and I'm I'm feeling like they're they're, they're talking about that stuff but then they're not they're showing us other things that don't align with it
0: it there's a lot of telling but not showing you know that whole conversation was how one person is irrelevant but then how many episodes ago was harry absolutely losing his mind because uh, gal wasn't on terminus anymore exactly and and it was supposed to be rach in the ship and it's it's all falling apart well, again, until it's though, not
1: let's go back to the idea that you're carefully trying to set up the initial conditions of a plan
0: okay and yeah, that those that. are the
1: yeah. initial conditions if you screw up my initial conditions you screw up my plan so yeah i i again i'm i'm, I'm the threader of needles here i'm trying to give some <laughs> well let me say my, this let- my, my my
3: favorite example in this episode of this contradiction is when they arrive on the mining planet and Gail is like, Harry, you said you were taking us to Ignis. Like, why is this happening? And then you say the prime radiant is telling us to come here, but the prime radiant is a mathematical model. It doesn't set our travel itineraries. And he says, well, it does now, Um, which I I think is what writers call hanging a lantern on it. (laughs) 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 Right. So So, I mean, yeah, it's perfect. Like, obviously, like, the writers know this is not the way it's supposed to work. And then, but they're going to write, they're going to write the scene anyway. Right. So. And
2: and there was certainly a lot of characters arguing that the, that the, that what they were saying didn't make, or, or what the show was doing didn't make sense. And, you know, they've, they did that some in season one and they came back around and, and there was a reason for it. And if there is, I'm very happy. Right, like 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 when Mari showed the Prime Radiant to Salvor, I was like, okay, all this does is convince me that Mari's not smart because why would Salvor have any any ability with the Prime Radiant? But but, but,
1: but know, it was it a guess. Around. We know that Salvor has special powers, so let's take a shot. And it, it didn't I mean, it, it's a natural thing that people would do. I think the arguing between the the the, uh, the irrational argument between between Salvor and uh, between Gale and Harry. I mean, Joseph, I'm sure you've gone to conferences of mathematicians, and I'm oh, sure yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of irrational argument that absolutely. Goes on absolutely between them. So maybe that's just true to life, and 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 I think you know one thing that's that I think is happening here is that in, in a lot of ways the books were a conversation between the great man theory of history and the bottom up theory of history, mm-hmm. and to some extent that is what is happening here. There is a conversation going on between these two theories, and what I wanted to say is the Bell Rio story in Foundation and Empire was really the culmination of the plan. It was mm-hmm. the plan working at its best. And let's maybe see how this story comes out. I, I would think that we are on a path that could lead us to the Bellario Rio story being that same culmination of psychohistory to be immediately overturned as it was in the books by the appearance of the mule. Mm-hmm. And if that's true, then I don't think we can complain that they're not Being true to the books. I think that's as true to the books as you can get. However, it is that we get there, whatever path we take to that mountain pass, if we get there, I think we're all going to have to say, well, you know, they're they're doing what was advertised. Well,
0: you know what would take some of the curse off of it for me. And I'm I I can't, I don't, I have absolutely no basis for this other than trying to find a loophole for myself. Is if the second foundation really is still on Trantor, and this iteration of Harry doesn't even know it. And if they're pulling the strings at this point, which is they're supposed to be anyway, uh, then we get a lot of this stuff falls into place because it's all just kind of brownie in motion in a cup of tea and doesn't matter.
1: Yeah. I mean, we were led to Helicon. We've been led to Ignis. You know, you're right. We could be getting completely head faked. And we do know from what Dan brought us last week, the the list of cast members, we do know there is a cast member listed as the head of the Mentalics, And so that's somebody we haven't met yet. But they're certainly a cast member this season, so we shall see.
0: Well, and it's also, if you think about it, Harry did not expect to be on the ship Determinus, and engineered when he was. He, you know, we we saw he he engineered his own murder because he realized his presence there would would throw a monkey wrench in the works. So it, to me anyway, it makes sense that any of the digital iterations of himself either never knew. Or he made sure to edit them so that they didn't know that the Second Foundation had been formed before they even left Trantor.
2: Mm.
1: It's possible. That's nice. I mean, I guess Harry was supposed to be executed. That was what he thought was the the highest probability. And Gale, again, Gale circumvented that or short-circuited that by her bluff with the Emperor saying, if you execute Harry, then, you know, the, the you'll be dead within five years or whatever it was. And Harry was actually expecting to be executed, which is why he had to engineer his murder and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And also
2: was,
0: within wheels. Mills within wheels.
2: Also yeah. might be why there's <laughs> so many copies of him floating around.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, now my prediction was that the multiple copies of Harry were going to get merged into one. I think making Hollow Harry into a real boy may have made that difficult to impossible. So we may get Harry meeting Harry at
2: some point.
0: And there may be more Harrys. Do we think we're going to get to keep Okona? I mean... Uh, uh,
2: <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. I, 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 I had that reference in mind, too.
1: <laughs> is that who Hober Mallow is?
2: I think he's he's closer to he's out, closer to the outrageous Okona than he certainly is to the Hober Mallow from the books.
1: Yeah, well, it's clear that, he, that the Vault thinks he's playing an important role. So I believe we are going to get to keep him. We're going to go back to Terminus. I doubt very much if he's going to meet the fate that Gordon Jaeger met being immolated by the, by the vault. So yes, I think the answer to your question is yes. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Hober is going to play, (laughs) although what role he's going to play. uh, I can't predict.
0: Well, that's, that's one of the weird things. Again, you know, you've got this universe where it doesn't seem to be too uncommon for people to live hundreds of years through cryosleep. And yet, every time somebody meets someone who who is older than they should be, like, how the hell are you still here? Like, yeah, I slept last century.
1: <laughs> yes, we still haven't had it explained how Polly is still alive, one hundred thirty-eight years after first seeing Harry. Uh, I speculate drinks only week. the good stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I,
1: I speculated last week that it had to do with traveling between the planets. Potentially, he had to spend some time doing that before they had developed a jump ship. Uh, and so did it on on a ship like the Beggar, and had to put himself into cryosleep the way Hugo did. Uh, but they haven't bothered to explain that. But he's the only one. There's no one else on the Foundation who has had that experience, whatever experience it is that he had that kept him alive. Certainly, a guy who's that much of an alcoholic probably didn't live to the age of 150. I'm guessing <laughs> that
0: without I mean, help.
2: You, but you know, you don't really. If these are all slower than light like ships. Except for the jump ships, of course, you don't need the cryosleep. Well, that's if you
1: go fast enough.
2: If right? you go fast, yeah, absolutely. It's if you go fast enough.
1: But that was certainly not what Hugo said. Hugo Hugo said that not that he had lived longer because of relativistic speeds, but because of cryosleep. Right. So you know that that only applies if you're going a significant percentage of the speed of light. Otherwise, you're really not going to see much of the uh, time dilation effect. Yeah. You know, we're talking 75% of the speed of light and up. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe, maybe they, they can do that. I, I, I
2: well, they, they must be way above, well above that if they got to another planetary system well, as quickly as they did in the beginning of the episode. Well, we
1: don't know how close Una's world was. I mean, you know, yes, we made that point last week about how if, if Ignis is a parsec away, even if they're traveling very close to the speed of light, it should take them three years plus to get there. Clearly, they got somewhere very, very fast
2: very very uh, fast
1: yeah i don't know how fast
2: yeah but, but again, i mean it, it's there, there's yeah i gotta think that, that that planetary systems with more than one habitable planet have got to be exceedingly rare they've given us one that theoretically has three which yeah. i have a hard time buying
0: well i i blame jj i blame jj abrams for a lot of this because yeah. he he in all of his movies the star treks and the star wars they the the, the distances in space were utterly ignored yeah. and too many filmmakers in general filmmakers at all film TV, because it's kind of all the same now are are just taking that as a, as a given that we don't have to sweat cosmic distances anymore.
1: Yeah. Even the expanse, which is one of my favorite shows and tries to be very accurate to the science, even to the point of saying, well, we can, we can put these people under high acceleration because we have this juice that we inject into their bodies even they the, the time that it takes to travel between the planets in the solar system just doesn't align with what would what it would really be even with high acceleration. So
0: but at least they tried they they made the attempt to say you know they did a, it, you know it doesn't really work but it was a little more than hand-wavy at yeah, least. Yeah, a
1: little more but in yeah. the end they had to do, you just can't have months long trips between Exactly. Jupiter and Mars or whatever. And uh, but yeah, but we've mentioned before how this show uh just seems to uh well wave its hands over some of these things and
0: well and it's it's a it's a lack of consistent words rick consistency uh that bugs me i'll i'll buy anything if you establish what your the rules of your universe are and then as long as you stick to those rules you know we can get from planet a to planet b in 3 weeks because this drive does it then you need that drive to do it but sometimes it takes weeks sometimes it takes years sometimes it takes centuries depending on what the plot needs, gets a little annoying.
1: And nerds like us are sticklers for these things.
0: Exactly. And you're right. It's, it's about consistency.
1: <laughs> well, and honestly,
2: works, those say, what, what, one of the one of the defining things, like when I think about what makes, you know, good special effects versus bad special effects, as long as I can accept the special effects and I'm in the show and I'm thinking about the story, I'm fine. But if they, if they, you know, at the beginning of this episode, I'm thinking, how the hell did they get there so fast? I'm, I'm not in the story.
1: Yeah, that's, that's right. That's what it does. It takes you out of the story. And that's why it's bad.
2: Yeah. And honestly, it's it's not just science fiction, right? There was a show, I think it was called The Glades. There was a detective that was set in, I want to say, Broward County, Florida. And unfortunately, I grew up in Florida. And I know where everything is. And I know you can't get to the University of Florida from Broward County in a half an hour, and it just it just it just drove me crazy
1: I, I often say that anytime you see anytime you see a show where there is some either it's about your job or just something that you know really well it's always going to happen that there's going to be something that goes well that's not how that works
2: Come yeah, on. you're absolutely right you're absolutely right but it uh, you know it uh, maybe it was fine for everybody else but it irritated me
1: <laughs> overall though I am very engaged in, in this season two. I am interested in seeing where they go with all of this reference back to the original source material. It at least shows a desire to make the fans happy. I, you know, I said last week that I think if, I, I wonder how people who were ready to give up on the show after season one are reacting. I suspect many of them are just not watching. Mm-hmm. But I do like that they're that they're trying and potentially potentially as i said a minute ago they're setting up the bell rio story to more or less follow
2: asimov that would be yeah that would be nice
0: john you you brought your wife on right i did yes yeah and and she has not read the books
2: she has not
1: she still has not
0: okay i'm curious how people like your your wife and i know the i've i know some people who are watching foundation who have not read the books i am very curious how they will react if after the series is done, then they go and read the books.
1: I think there'll probably be a lot of those, hey, that's the guy from the TV show. But he's totally different. <laughs> yeah. Why, Why are I? they talking so much?
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why can't you this know, be more like the show?
1: <laughs> I watched The Expanse, and then I went back and read the books. And there are a lot of differences. There are composite characters. There are characters mm. who are decomposited in the books. And generally I like the show better than the books, but that's just. Really?
0: I'm the 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 other way around. Really? I think they're both equally good in their own ways. But if I had, if I had to choose one or the other, I I think the books are better. And I started with the show. I watched the first season of the show and then I started reading the books and the books just absolutely hooked me.
1: So I I watched almost all of the show before starting to read the books. Mm. Um, I the thing, the thing though that I I did love, like this show, the thing that I love most about The Expanse is the fantastic characters. Oh, yeah, whether it's Bobby, the the Martian Marine, or or uh, Avasarala. just oh, love I love it. her I love <laughs> uh, on and on and on. And uh, Kara G, who played um, what was her name?
0: Uh, uh oh, uh, oh, hell, <laughs> yeah, right, D- anyway. D- D- not Draper, Draper, no, no, Draper is no, a soldier, that's eh? that's Bobby, yeah, um. She's anyway, just a lot of people a great are, character. Yeah, a, a lot of people keep comparing her on.
1: <laughs> right, she's not the same in the books, but I loved her in the in the TV show. There's the character that David Strathairn played, who again is not the same in the books.
0: Although Amos is pretty much the same guy in both. Amos, <laughs> love Amos, <laughs> love Amos so much. The
1: scene—I I don't want to make this into an Expanse podcast—but <laughs> the scene um, with um, what's his name, the the the, the villainous guy, where. Uh, Amos tells his friend not to kill him. <laughs> he says, yeah, he's not that guy, but I am. I am that guy. Yeah. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> yeah. I love Amos.
0: Watch The Expanse, folks. It's totally yeah, worth it. Definitely
1: watch The Expanse. But again, <laughs> it's about the characters. It's about the characters and the performances. And I really feel like, you know, we can we can nitpick and complain about where Foundation, the TV show, is not in small ways where it's not doing the right things and big ways where they've made changes and of course the ongoing debate about how they're approaching psychohistory and how Asimov approached it. But in the end, what keeps me coming back is I want to see more of Brother Day. I want to see more of Deelle. I want to see what's happening with these characters and I'm able to separate them from what happened in the books and just keep coming back and launching.
0: And you're right and that's uh, yeah when when this episode finished, I was this season or this show, really has me longing for this being one of those shows where they drop the entire season at once because I don't want to stop. Even though there are plenty of nitpicks, you know, we're like we're we're sci-fi fans, we're Star Trek fans. This is our bread and butter is just getting into the minutia but overall, uh I'm I'm really enjoying the show. I'm just having to uncouple and just just ride along with it now. And and I think the you know the first season showed us we're not getting a slavish depiction of the book, uh, the books. And I just have had to get to accept that. And not just, not just from a rational standpoint, but also emotionally and say, all right, this is what they're going to do with it. Uh, you know, I'm a Dune fan and I'm still waiting for that book to be made into. I mean, I, I liked the the first Dune movie. The second one's coming out soon. Not, not not David Lynch's first movie, the first Dylan one. Right. But as a, as a, dune fan waiting for a good visual adaptation of that book is has just been a a a series of disappointments so i can i can cope with this one being weird
1: this is certainly not a visual disappointment
0: no not at all not at all in fact i was i was watching i had to do a little bit of research just to make sure i got the names right because the last time i made a comment like that like this I i pulled the wrong name out of my failing memory the beggar reminds me a lot of some of the early design work ron cobb did for alien huh Uh, i like i like the fact that it's you know it's it's it looks like a, a cigarette case it's not aerodynamic in any way because it's a spaceship it doesn't need to be
1: right although they do fly it into atmospheres which you know
0: yeah but it doesn't seem to care about the air it doesn't seem to need the air to to maneuver itself
1: Right, right. Of course. But it's, 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 it that is noticeably, absolutely. It has the aerodynamics of a brick.
0: <laughs> Quite literally.
1: So, she, Kamina Drummer, by the way, is the name Drummer,
0: of the thank Drummer. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I got a question for y'all. Yeah. The scene where uh, uh, Brother Day and Demerzel are, you know, voyeuring on Del Rios and, uh, and his husband, aside from just being creepy. She had her hands on his head. What do you think that was? Just her keeping him aroused, or were we watching some manipulation going on?
1: I was afraid that she was just going to snap his head around <laughs> and just decant another day. But there was that. There was something sinister going on.
2: Yeah. Aside from being creepy, I think. Well, I, I think that there's some manipulation there. I think the whole. I think she's somehow behind that whole. I'm going to get married, and then the genetic dynasty thing.
1: Certainly, book book Demerzel, as we know, has the ability to manipulate minds. Mm-hmm. So far, we haven't seen any indication of that from TV Demerzel. I, I thought a well,
2: bunch you of can things use about use Endorphins this. pretty effectively.
1: Well, that's that's true. <laughs> I mean, I thought a couple of things about that scene. One is that it's a kind of a funhouse mirror image of what they're watching. Like they're watching a true tender moment between two people who love each other. And they're mm-hmm. mirror-imaging it in their really weird kind of mommy, mm-hmm. you know, and she's saying, oh, you're doing well, you're doing great. It's That's just so incestuous, that relationship. And obviously we know it's been consummated. And I think they were trying to show that contrast on the one hand.
2: Yeah, actually, I think uh, something you said there the, the sparked a thought. I, th- I think we've got Brother Day in, in this episode and and they're just kind of reinforcing it. Kind of being insecure, maybe maybe showing signs of being the weak emperor that we need for the Bel Rios story. Well, although so, that, str- that was been. yeah, if, if you're a confident emperor, I don't think you you bitch that much about you know uh, empires needing confidence when when he's confronting Bel Rios, and you know there she's really having to reassure him. So I yeah. mean, they might be going somewhere with that.
1: So I, I thought there was a lot going on in that scene. I thought there was the sinister. You know, she, she could at any moment snap his neck. There's the weird sexual thing between them, then there's the contrast with what's going on on the screen. And then somewhere on that, somewhere in all of that, I think there is a true emotional connection between Day De and Demoiselle. Like there's something actually real. They're not just something sick, but something also that's actually emotionally real. So there's a, you know, I'm glad you brought that scene up, Rick, because that, that is, there's just a lot going on in that scene. What else have we got from this, from this episode? Well, so you, I got, you, so I got, I got a
2: general question. Go for it. Is the foundation from what we've seen now more technologically advanced than the empire?
1: I I think they've at least reached a point where they are widely disseminating technology that maybe the empire has some of, but it is held very close you know, there are things that the emperors have that nobody else has. Mm-hmm. And the foundation has an interest in distributing that type of technology. Now, they are doing it as they did in the books through the religion. So I think there are, they're sort of passing the empire in their technological abilities. And they are also making it, I think, attempting to make it more widely available to everyone. That's my read on it.
2: Yeah, because I think if, if you look at the, um, what is it? What, what do they call it? What does um, Polly call a ship? I think the spirit uh, if, yeah. you, if you compare that to the Empire's jump ships, in fact, that when when we see Bel Rios' ship leaving, you know, you know, leaving that dock, it looks the side is rough and it looks unfinished, which is um, which was sort of interesting. But they seem to be so much better at at the uh, the jumps. It's so so much more casual on on the the spirit. Yeah, that I'm thinking that they might start having that technological layout, this technological uh, advantage that we saw in the books.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely saw it in the books. And and a, a lot of it was about miniaturization, right? The foundation didn't have a lot of resources, and so they made things smaller and more efficient. And, you know, it's like what Homer Mallow discovers when he goes to visit the empire. Uh, remember, he realizes that the empire has been supplying, I guess it's Coral that the empire has mm-hmm. been supplying. And he goes to visit Suena. That's where he meets Bar. But he also goes and he, he sees a... a a nuclear plant where no one knows how to run the thing. And he realizes that the empire can build things like a shield that can protect a city, but they can't build a shield that can protect a single human being. Right. Now that's not the same here. Obviously the empire has that technology here. They have the aura. They've had it since the very beginning. But again, like, like I said, it's not widely distributed that right. maybe the foundation is gaining an advantage by widely distributing their technology. So we'll, we'll find out, but I think that's, it's coming, right? It's coming. I think if you're going to have a war and you're going to make it have any tension at all, you can't really have one side just have a massive technological right. advantage because right. then the war becomes kind of pointless. And of course, as we know, the Foundation doesn't really win this war through military means. Even though their ships are better, they're much smaller, they're really not able to... And Rios is a, is a genius general. They are not able to fight him. He he loses because of politics, not because, right. because of uh, the Foundation's technological advantage.
2: Yeah, but being so much smaller, they almost would need into, in that context. Being so much smaller, they'd almost need the advantage in order to compete.
1: So, I mean, I think I think they're kind of leading us that way somewhat. But subsequent episodes will tell us. Now, remember, we only got we only got seven more episodes, and they yeah. have bitten off a lot of work. There's a lot of speculation about whether we're going to see the mule again this season or not. Mm-hmm. There was some talk that they were only intending to bring the mule in towards the end as the sort of more typical cliffhanger but they brought him up in order to continue the you know get the audience engaged and um you know to to, to move the story that way and do the whole gale seeing the future thing so uh it's possible we will not see him again
2: Well, that would be good, or or at least if he just stays a tease, because I really think if they try to do the Bell Rio story and the Mule story and the religion story and the traitor story, that's going to be way too much packed into one season. I was
1: was challenged by a a listener on my assertion that they're not going to get eight seasons and that they're going to wrap it up soon. And I was asked, how can you be so sure? And let me reassure everyone, I am not sure. I absolutely have no knowledge of that. Certainly the speed by which they introduced all of those elements that you just mentioned, Joseph, into the, into the story last week kind of reinforced in my mind this idea that in the current streaming environment, it's really hard to get a lot of seasons and that you need to be able to wrap things up quickly. But I have no special knowledge. This is all speculation on my part.
0: I think you're 100% right on it, though. There's, this show is not getting eight seasons. If a Star Trek show can't get, eight, can't get seven seasons a star Trek show that is successful on a network on a, on a streaming service and a network that claims to be a hundred percent behind it and they're shutting it down in its fifth season. I don't, I don't see this show going a full eight.
2: Okay. Am I wrong? I thought that I thought that they decided, I thought that it was the producers deciding to end discovery and move on to something else. It
0: is that that's what I mean. The, the okay, the the bean counters are the ones that are kind of pulling the strings right now. Oh,
1: look at Prodigy! Okay. Forget Discovery for a second. Look at Prodigy. They showed yeah, prod, season, Prodigy season, yeah, maybe second is, season, and then now they've erased it from existence.
2: Yeah, yeah, Prodigy is is a travesty. But okay, see, I, I thought that the I thought that the the um, Discovery thing was a creative decision.
0: Oh and, oh, um, not that I I, I, I okay. I cannot say one way or another I had never heard it heard that I had heard it was strictly a money thing
1: well let me ask you this Joseph name for me a Star Trek show that has gotten eight seasons
2: well they the the three that got to seven seasons they planned they, they were planned out to seven seasons right I mean they they only intended seven seasons even from the beginning
1: but mm. my point is that none not a single Star Trek has gone eight seasons
2: right.
0: And I think so when it's hard yeah, I mean, I mean,
2: enterprise is the better better example there because they had I think they had the seven the same seven season plan as everybody else.
0: Yeah, and then they but, got cut um, off at four.
2: But they got cut off at four.
0: I I think when the plans for foundation were made and the green light was given and they started working on this, I think that that the environment then certainly made it look like if the show was a hit they could get eight seasons. We have seen a major change in the streaming hierarchy where the shareholders are realizing they're not getting as much money as they thought they were going to be. And so we're getting a kind of a a stranglehold coming from above, not from a creative standpoint, but from a, this was supposed to be a bottomless pit of money and now it's not.
1: So I will go back through my theory again of what the economics of streaming is because I think it's important. And also there, I have a new piece of information, which is that I heard an interview with, um, what's his name iger the head of disney bob right. iger and he's and this was in a um, a shareholder's meeting or you know a, a, an earnings meeting and he stressed the fact that the metric that they use as i suspected is what they call subgen which is subscription generation everything is about subgen what gets the most subgen is what they're going to support it's what they're going to market and the first season of a show this is not iger this is me my theory is that the first season of the show is much more likely to get you subgen. Subsequent seasons may hold on to viewers and some shows like Succession, where you hear a lot of buzz. Like for instance, I didn't watch Succession. And then I heard so much buzz about it. I went back and watched the whole thing. But I think that the, the economics, the metric, the one metric they're using is subscription generation. First seasons of shows get more than A first season of a bad show gets more subscription generation than the subsequent seasons of a good show. And so subsequent seasons of a good show are not being prioritized here. They really could care less about whether whether they finish the story or not. It's all about subgen. It's all about season one of a new show. And that is what I think is the economic that kills shows that want a lot of seasons.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. And yet both Paramount Plus and Disney Plus seemed to very clearly try to string together like it's the marvel it was the marvel shows on disney plus and it was the star trek shows on paramount plus they worked hard to prevent a gap from opening up so i think you know maintain the maintain the subscriptions but i mean if if you're right the smart thing to do if we want to support a show is to quit the service and come back to it
0: i guess i guess and and the prop well you know i didn't even think about it that because i was going to say the one thing I like about streaming that I think is a is a mistake but I'm you know I'm no business genius by any stretch is that there has since streaming started there has never been a penalty for terminating your subscription when the show you like is over and then coming back when it starts up again right and I wonder if got that, to that yet. they might they might they, they might they yeah might. but I wonder if what you just said Joseph might make some sense about that in that. Every new subscription, if they're not looking at people that left, they're only looking at new subscriptions. So every time you re up, it ticks off as one new subscription.
1: I mean, you'd think they'd be more sophisticated than that, but I think what Bob Iger is telling you is that they're not.
2: Yeah, well, I, I there there's so much stuff in my life where I think that something halfway deep is going on, and it turns out, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be right, like, well, well, that can't possibly be the answer. It's too too simple. And nope that that's what it is. Yeah.
1: Well, I think we've we've gone on for a while. Is there anything else that has burning questions that anybody has about foundation to get back to what the podcast is about? Okay. Uh, okay. Podcast oh yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Okay. I got I got one last thing. I think. Okay. Uh, because I posed a question online as a poll. If we're gonna have a bunch of Harrys, what would one call a group of Harrys? What would you know? <laughs> there, there's like clouders of cats and herds of cattle and whatnot. And so I looked at I looked at what they call groups of groups of ravens. And groups of ravens are either called an unpleasantness, <laughs> a rave, a treachery, or a conspiracy. All of which are just kind of awesome.
1: Feels like harry is some combination of all of those things.
2: It does. But what would be the best name for a gaggle of harrys?
0: A crises.
2: A
1: crises. A crises. <laughs> <laughs> I like the conspiracy. I like that.
0: Or a grouch. A grouch. grouch.
2: Dan.
3: I don't know. I, I I would say a mathematics conference of Harry's. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: it doesn't really trip off the tongue.
2: But it, it really doesn't.
1: <laughs> a symposium. A symposium. Oh, symposium. <laughs> Well Dan have you got a moment of levity for us prepared? You
3: know this week it it seemed like it was impossible not to go with the the whole uh Robert Mallow sequence which mm-hmm. is is more than one scene it, it it's the very rare example in this series of deliberate humor and and uh, you know humor here this is not like slapstick right this is this is just a little bit of sort of light wittiness and and roguishness which which translates into humor but you know something that's a little bit lighter than the rest of the series like deliberately written that way i've got to go with that and for me really the crowning moment of that though is is the is the bullseye in this in this suit they put him in I just got such a kick out of that. I don't know why it's a square bullseye. I don't know if they were, if like, they didn't want to infringe on Target's uh, (laughs) copyright uh, for the logo, but it was just, (laughs) it was, it was very silly. It looked very silly with this, you know, this Titans prick thing sort of aiming down at that. And then the last minute switcheroo, I just got such a kick out of it. This, this did not take any particular uh concentration to discover levity in this scene but but uh it seemed to me like a clear
2: winner no i I laughed really hard at i'm rather busy right now (laughs) (laughs) as he's being dragged to the gallows
1: my capital is being punished
2: (laughs) yes that was good too
1: i i was interested in the fact that they spared the comdor in a lot of stories, you'd think the Commodore would just get, mm-hmm. would get. I, I was I was expecting it's, him to, to get weird. to get pricked. <laughs> right?
2: yeah. It was a very close thing, though.
1: I didn't particularly like the Mallow character, and so the the final scene of him being injected with the purge stuff and throwing up <laughs> actually, I I kind of liked that. I kind of got a kick out of that. He deserved it. I I really felt.
3: I I hope the Bishop's Claw in this in the hole didn't get covered in barf.
1: I was thinking about
3: that. Too. <laughs> You know, uh, Becky. Speaking
1: of, last thing about like <laughs> special effects. I, I find the, the, the Bishop's claw, I don't know what they're doing there, but it's, it's seamless. You know, I, I don't see like signs of stop motion. Maybe there's an animal that they're putting CGI on top of or something like that.
0: Maybe a lot of animatronic. That, uh, I mean, we're, we're only getting glimpses of it. True. So.
1: But when we see it, it's very smooth. So I'm, I I'm, I guess animal.
0: now that I think of it, you know why? Why
1: is
3: it there? Because they had it on Su- Suena, and then they brought it back to Terminus, and then they just did they? They could have let it out.
1: Like <laughs> I it's. Good. I think it's Brother Constant's <laughs> pet. Is it the pet? Really? Yeah. Okay. Just, just. It
3: does seem around. like an
1: obvious piece of burden.
3: Yeah. Know? Well, and
2: and because yeah. on because uh, I had originally I, I didn't pick up on that being a bishop's claw at first. I just thought it was an indigenous animal she was riding around.
1: I mean i i was looking at it when we first saw it and went why is there is that a bishop's phone why is that on sawena but obviously they brought it they brought it with them so
0: i have a moment of levity that's us right. <laughs> uh when when uh uh polly tells brother constant that uh that hober mallow sold 38 of harry's finger bones before they shut him down
3: mm. <laughs> yes that was nice <laughs>
1: yeah I was too busy going, that's not Hobermallow. Hobermallow's not like that. He doesn't sell relics.
2: Not even a little, really. Pieces
1: of the true Harry. (laughs) All right. Well, on that moment of levity, I think we're going to wrap up and hope that um, next week is another good combination of action-packed and throwbacks to the original source material and advancement of the story and maybe help us answer some of these questions that we've been posing and continue to pose to the show. So Rick, thank you very much.
2: Thank you for, for having us. me. It was a we'll fun as, it as always. Time.
3: Thanks,
1: Rick. And uh, we'll say goodbye.
3: Well, that brings this week's episode to a close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe and give us a like and a positive review on your favorite platform.
1: You can also visit our website at starsendpodcast.wordpress.com where there's always additional content. Our music, used by a Creative Commons license, is It Is Coming by Alex Mason.
2: Also, follow us on Twitter, at Stars Podcast. Goodbye for now from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars end.